Thanks for checking out the New Life Speakers podcast. All of our speakers are recorded live at our AA meeting held on Friday nights at 8 p.m. at the Atonement Church in Wyomissing, Pennsylvania. More information about recovery and our upcoming events can be found on our website, newlifespeakers.org. If you don't want to miss our newest upcoming speakers, don't forget to subscribe and turn on notifications. This podcast is self-supporting, so if you enjoy this podcast, please put a dollar or two into our virtual basket. You can find a link for this in the description. And if you know someone in need, please share this with them. Thank you. Hi, everybody. My name's Sarah. I'm definitely an alcoholic. Hi, Sarah. All right. All right. I want to make sure my zipper's up before we start because, <laughs> God forbid, I would ever, like, go home and my zipper would be down and I had spent, like, a whole hour telling my story with my zipper down and no one told me and that would be horrifying also because then I wouldn't trust you people anymore. But... Um, <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, when Chris asked me to speak, originally he asked me to speak on a night when I needed to study for um, an exam, and so I knew that regardless of the fact that I couldn't that night that I would have to because that's what we do. That's what I do. Um, and I was worried about what I was going to wear tonight. I was like kind of stressed out. I was like, oh my god, should I dress nice? Like, like should I try to like represent or something? And I was like, no, 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 no. Um, like, I just nice for work. Um, but I'm not doing this out of work. Like, I do this because it helps me stay sober. And I'm, and I'm hopeful that someone might hear something that could help them stay sober today. You know? Um, and so I asked God on my way over here, do me a favor, help me out. Maybe there might be something I could say that would be helpful to somebody in here. Um, so my sobriety date is February 23rd, 1999. Um, I have a home group. It's the Great Fact Group. We meet on Wednesday nights and why I'm missing on State Hill Road at 7 p.m. I am the speaker seeker for that group, at least for the women. Um, and it is hard roping women into that commitment for a full month. Yeah, I see a nodding head. <laughs> so um, I have a sponsor and she has a sponsor and I sponsor women when asked. Um, so I'll start at the beginning. So um, there's no addiction in my family, or there wasn't, there is now. Um, there's no addiction in my family, and um, I came from a really hardworking family, and they were comfortable financially. I had every opportunity to do the things I wanted to do and try, and um, I can't blame it on some sort of like dysfunction other than, you know, divorced parents, but like in this day and age, it's like everywhere. But so I, I can't really blame it on anything um, other than the fact that I was restless and irritable and discontent from the very beginning. And it wasn't that I thought there was something wrong with me. I always thought there was like something missing. Like there was something I didn't get that other people got or other other people understood. And, and I did it. And, um, you know, my story starts with using something that's not alcohol. And I know I always mention it because, you know, I know all those behaviors were there that I used in my addiction before I ever picked up. Um, and I started using food, you know, when I was just a little guy, um, gal, person. Um, <laughs> so 
Um, my mom tells me the story when I was like four and we were making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, not for sugar, it's delicious. And so I'm eating jelly. And she's like, okay, you have to stop now with the jelly. And she took it away and she put it away and then she went upstairs and did something and she came back down and she's like, were you back in the jelly? And I was like, nope. And she's like, you were in the jelly. And I was like, no, I wasn't. I mean, four years old, right in her eye. No, I was not in that jelly. She picked me up and took me into the bathroom and sat me like on the counter in front of the mirror. There's jelly all over my face, all over my face. And you know what I said? I was like, how did that get there? I have no idea. How did that get there? I had convinced myself that I hadn't eaten the jelly. No. Um, and that was at four, you know? So um, I was already like trying to find ways to do what I wanted to do regardless of the rules and not have to pay the price for it or have consequences. Um, so, uh, you know, when I talk about, like, I was always kind of looking for something. Where's that thing? Where's that thing that's going to fix me, that's going to make me feel better, that's going to make me, like, kind of feel like I belong here? And um, and I got to tell you, the facts of the matter, when I walked into AA, I didn't think here was the place that I belonged. I certainly did not, just, just so you know. I, there wasn't this, like, magical, like, oh, my people at last. I was like, this is where I've ended up. Oh, for God's sakes. Um, but I'm, hap I'm here and happy now. So that didn't last. Anyway, so, you know, I was always looking for that thing, and I got all the things that I wanted. Like, okay, so I wanted to play soccer, so I played soccer. I wanted to play basketball, I played basketball. I wanted to play softball, I did that. I wanted to play tennis, I went away to tennis camp. I went to horseback ride, so I went away to horseback riding camp, and I got to lease a horse and do all this horsey stuff. And it didn't, do, like, for a while, it was like, oh, this is the thing, this is the thing that's gonna do it. And I didn't do it. Skiing, went skiing, was out to Colorado, up to Vermont. This is the thing. Nope, that wasn't the thing either. And, um, you know, my eating disorder progressed in my teens. And uh, in about ninth grade, like I went on my first diet when I was like 11. And it's funny because I look at pictures of myself and I was really tall. And I was taller than most of the boys. So. You know, at the age of like 12, I was already like 5'8", and I stayed there. I didn't get any taller. But the boys were like coming up to here on me. And so I look at pictures of myself from like playing soccer when I was 12, and I was taller than everyone else, and I felt like kind of like I stood out, and, and I probably did. But I wasn't fat. I just was taller than everyone else, and I always thought I was big. So, you know, Problems with my eating, you know, restricting, binging, purging, purging with exercise. And um, it was the end of ninth grade. And my girlfriend's like, Sarah's never had a drink. We should see if we can get Sarah drunk. Like they had all like had alcohol at like friends' weddings or like, you know, like their uncle's parties and stuff. And I've never tried any, like a sip of beer here and there for my dad, which I thought tasted disgusting. Um, and so they're like, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. So my parents did their regular Friday night thing, which was go to Heckinger's, which is like a Home Depot. That was what they did on Friday nights. So they could buy stuff to fix up the house more. Like I just, I came from a really hard working family. Like they worked really hard all week. And on the weekends, they spent time working on the house and fixing up the house. This like sense of entitlement thing that I have, I don't know where that came from. I have no idea. And you know, in talking about like 
all the opportunities I had to try things, as soon as it came time to do some work to get better, then I didn't want to do it anymore. You know, I wanted to play the piano. They bought me a piano. Piano teacher said, wow, she's got some natural ability. She's, she's pretty talented. And I heard that and I was like, yeah, that's right, I'm pretty talented, which means I don't have to practice. So I only got by for as long as, as my, you know, I could sight read or whatever. That's as long as I could get. I wanted to play a saxophone. They bought me a saxophone. As soon as, like, my natural ability wore off, no, wasn't interested anymore. Now I got to work at it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not good at working at things. Um, I was in the gifted program at school, and and um, I didn't know what it was. I just knew that I went with like other like nerdy kids to this like other class where we did fun stuff that other people didn't do. And um, then I found out that it was because I had a really high IQ. And once I knew I had a high IQ, <clears throat> well, I don't have to do any work. So I didn't do any work. Um, and you know, I was at a loss when I got to college at like how to like consistently go to class, do homework, you know, read a syllabus. Like I was clueless because I had never invested any time in my education. Anyway, so it's the end of ninth grade. Sarah's never been drunk. We're gonna try and get her drunk. Um, and I wasn't really eating much at the time. So um, the alcohol that the, had the least amount of calories was gin. So I was like, well, I'll have gin. So I had gin and crystal light and a, a gin and tab. And I also had, does anyone know what tab is? Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, gin and tab. Uh, a gin and diet root beer, also not delicious. Um, and gin and something else. I don't remember what the other drink was. And um, I drank really fast because it tastes terrible. And um, like a couple minutes later, I started. Something's happening. I feel something. There was like tingling and like warm, and I was like, "Oh my God, something's happening!" And I was like, "No, that can't be it. Is that it? Is that the thing?" And then I don't remember anything else. Um, so I was told that um, I called the guy I had a crush on in high school and told him how much I loved him and that um, I wanted him to take my virginity and um, all sorts of other embarrassing things. And um, I fell down, I split my lip, I uh, passed out. So that very first time, blackout, pass out, sick for like three days afterward, I thought, oh my God, I must have this terrible stomach bug, <clears throat> right? I was, I, it couldn't have been the alcohol, right? That rationalization right from the beginning, couldn't have been the alcohol. You know, and when I drank the first time, I didn't go like, this is the thing. Like, I didn't think that. Um, but there was probably a moment that it hit my brain and my brain was like, this is the thing. And I don't know when that happened. Um, so throughout high school, you know, with sports, my natural ability wore off around 10th grade and you had to start practicing if you wanted to be good. And that's, and I didn't want to play anymore. I didn't want to play lacrosse. I don't want to play basketball because I got to work at it. Um, and we would like, with my friends, we drink on the weekends when people's parents were away. Um, I got arrested for a couple of underage drinking parties. Um, and, uh, you know, it was funny because when I ended up in treatment uh, when I was 28, they asked me like about consequences, you know, young, like when I was a teenager, I was like, uh, no, yeah, no, no, nothing. Mm -mm, can't think of a thing. Um, yeah, I went to like these classes, these like outpatient classes for 
like eight weeks where we learned about all the different chemicals and what it does in your body and stuff. And I was like, oh my God, I was in like outpatient when I was a teenager, holy shit. Like I didn't even know that. I didn't realize that because, because I just pushed it back. Those are not, that was not, everyone was doing it. You know, everyone was doing it and everyone wasn't, but I was. And um, so out of some miracle, I got decent SAT scores and got into all the colleges I applied to, except for main campus, Penn State, and I'm still schlepping around that resentment. Um, and uh, so I decided to go to University of Maryland because I heard it was a serious party school. I was like, yeah, that's where I belong. I belong in a party school. And Florida State had run out of on-campus housing. Um, and I knew somebody there who could get me a fake ID. Well, that sounds like the best reason ever to go to that particular college, right? That makes sense. I mean, there wasn't even an ounce of, like, they have what I want to study. Like, it it just wasn't there. So it was kind of like I was just sort of going along with the crowd. You know, like, this is what everyone does. They go to high school, they go to college, then they meet some guy, they get married, and they, you know, have a family. And, like, and I was just doing what everyone else was doing. Um, But, like, it wasn't working. So... You know, and I did have other uh, consequences that I wasn't aware of in high school, like all the times that I blacked out and I vomited and I threw up in people's cars and houses and, you know, we all laughed about it and stuff, but it was not funny. You know, when I look back at it today, it was like, I was getting sick. I was getting sicker. Um, So I got to college and um, my first uh, botany class, there were about 300 people in it. It was in one of those, like, graduated like assembly kind of rooms and like no one was taking attendance so if they don't take attendance like why go that just didn't why would I go I mean then the class was at 10 in the morning which was so early you know especially when you stay up all night and you're drinking so you know I had terrible grades my freshman year I had a 183 and my parents were like you better pull it up or you're not going back I was like, okay, all right. So I busted my butt and only went out three nights a week in that spring, and I brought it up to a 2.5. And um, then my parents said they didn't want me coming home for the summer. They wanted me to stay at school. They thought it was a good idea. Well, that was because when I was home on my breaks, I was coming home at like 3 in the morning, shit-faced. And they were like, oh, my God, we can't watch this. We can't watch our child do this. So I stayed at college that summer, I was like the only freshman, or like it was the summer after my freshman year who was there. So I didn't know a lot of people, so I couldn't, I didn't really have an opportunity to go out much. Um, Going out was more of like a with people kind of thing still. It wasn't a solo gig yet. Um, There were periods of my drinking where I did get solo. Um, So, um, so I did really well over the summer because I didn't know anybody, couldn't drink. So I just, I did actually my work. And um, sophomore year started, and I found a way to like manage my drinking. So I would go out Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, drunk, drunk, drink a sorority, like so I could drink more with more people, like so my parents could pay for my drinking. Um, and then on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night, would just work really hard, do all my work. And then in my sophomore year, when I came home for Christmas, I got in a really bad car accident. I got I got hit by a drunk driver, interestingly enough. And 
I actually had been driving drunk the night before. Um, I'm from right outside Philadelphia, and I had been down in um, Chestnut Hill at a bar where it was easy to get in when you were underage. And I drove drunk on that Saturday night. And then the next night on Sunday, I had to go to the video store to return videos. Does anybody know what that means? Okay. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so I had to return videos. It was 1990. And um, on my way home, I got hit by a guy who was drunk. He had like a .28 and he died in the accident. And I got pretty fucked up. I had my seatbelt on, but like I broke lots of bones and my face hit the steering wheel and there were no airbags then. And um, like it wrecked my teeth and like I was, I was a mess, broken stuff. And like the keys went into my leg. And, and I mean, I was in the shock trauma for like four days. Then I was in the hospital for a while. And of course, what were they doing while I was in shock trauma? How do you think they were getting rid of my pain? So um, it wasn't until I went to the regular hospital, they switched me over to pills, and I started getting nasty then. And then I went home, and my parents didn't give me anything, and then I got really nasty. And, you know, I didn't know at the time what was happening, but, like, I was in the draw. Like, I had no idea. And I was feeling so sorry for myself. Poor Sarah. She was just driving down the road, this asshole, this drunk hitter. It's horrible, it's horrible, poor Sarah. So I went back to school at the end of January, even though it was everyone said it was not a good idea. I should stay home, heal up. Like I still had a full arm cast on, I had tape on my face because of all the, the stitches I had to get. And I was like, no, I'm going back because that was the only place where I could drink without anybody paying attention. You know, I couldn't stay home with my parents. So um, I went back to college and sat on my pity pot for the whole semester and drank and got drunk every single night. Didn't go to a single class. And um, honest to God, it was my excuse was that this horrible thing had happened to me. And my friends couldn't understand, like, get over it. Like, what is wrong with you? Now, you know, I know today that absolutely I, I had PTSD from it. Like, there's no doubt in my mind that there was other stuff going on. But I used it as an excuse to drink every night. And um, and that's what I needed to do. So my, my girlfriends were like, you don't go to rehab, we're gonna tell your parents that you haven't been to a single class. I was like, well, they're gonna find out anyway, aren't they? Like, when I go to rehab. So, um, so I did. So I went to rehab in Beltsville, Maryland, and um, I remember sitting in the group room with a woman who was like eight months pregnant, and she was in there for crack, and I was like, you got a problem. You got a big problem. And then there was another guy who was talking about speedballs. And I was like, what is that? And he explained what that was. And I was like, you got a problem. You got a serious problem. And there was another guy who was like drinking vodka and Jack Daniels like right out of the bottle before he was in treatment. I was like, dude, you got a problem. I'm in a sorority. Like, I'm in a sorority. I'm in college. Like, you people are really sick. I don't think I belong here. And they tried, they tried really hard to convince me that was where I belonged. And, um, and I was like, no, 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 no. So after I left there, I actually didn't drink for a couple months just because my girlfriends were like, if you drink, we're not gonna hang out with you. And I was like, well, I'll find other friends who will drink with me. I mean, that wasn't hard to do, so I did. But um, 
so the next like five years, six years, I continued to try to go back to school. Every semester, I would take a full load of classes and then I would withdraw from one, withdraw from another, sell my books for one, sell my books for another, um, and end up you know, with like a D and a, and a W for the, for the semester. And so like at the beginning, I'd be there with my brand new books, like my, my books and my, and my notebook, and I'd be ready to go, and I'm like, this is it, this is the time, I'm gonna do it, this, I'm, I'm, you know what, I'm in it, I'm in it. And it would be more like two, three weeks, and I'm done. Like, and I, and I don't have any of that left in me. Because, um, you know, I'd get the syllabus, and I'd be like, oh my god. I didn't know how to do one assignment at a time. I didn't know how to go to one class at a time. I saw the syllabus, and I was like, there's no, I can't do that. Like, I can't do this. And no, I couldn't do all of it, not at one time, but I could do, like, one assignment at a time. I could do one class at a time, but I didn't know that then. I didn't know that, and I was just overwhelmed. So, um, you know, all my, my friends, they, they graduated, and I had about 40 credits after six years, and um, they graduated, they moved out to Bethesda, like outside DC, and, and they got real jobs. So now, they don't wanna go out on Tuesday night with me for dollar long neck buds, and I'm like, what? what do you mean you don't wanna go out for dollar long necks? Like, it's Tuesday night, we work tomorrow morning. I'm like. So, like, I, like, they were getting up and going to work, like real jobs. And I was working at like a pizza place, then I was working in the restaurant business, and I was bartending. When I found bartending, I thought, this is the thing. Finally, this is the thing. This is the thing I've been looking for all this time. I found this is, this is my niche. It wasn't my niche. Like, it just led me to more drinking, you know? And one restaurant after the next, and when my drinking showed up at the restaurant, and they recognized that I had a problem, I would move to the next restaurant. There were lots of restaurants in DC. Um, and the restaurant business introduced me to cocaine, which helps you drink, helped me, sorry, I don't know if it helps you guys, but it used to help me drink more. So I love to drink. And if I'm using cocaine, I can drink more. More drinking, better. So um, you know, the part that's, um, that is amazing is that awful car accident that I got in. A lot of money. So I was so like filled with self-pity and sad and angry about that, but it ended up being the very best thing that could have happened to me because like as you heard from my story, like I was on my way to full-blown alcoholism. I was just kind of taking my time getting there, you know, because I was still sort of managing and getting that money from the car accident a couple years later, like I could do whatever the fuck I wanted. Like I had all this money. I was freaking 23 years old. I had a ton of dough. I didn't have to do anything. I was going to the gym. I was buying all the clothes I wanted. Bought myself a Jeep. Like, you know, I was just doing whatever I wanted. And so I got sicker faster so I could get here younger is the way I look at it today. Like it was kind of meant to be. If I hadn't, if that hadn't happened, then who knows? I might not have gotten sober until I was like 40 or 50. I don't know. Maybe I never would. Maybe I would have killed somebody the next time I drove drunk. I don't know. But um, so uh, restaurant business, you know, I'm out every night. I sleep all day long, live like a vampire. They're terrible, not healthy, sleeping around. I mean, just a total shit show, like just a wreck. And, you know, everybody who sees me, they can see it. But, you know, I'm trying to put up that front, always trying to look good. Like, I loved being out at the bars because 
I could pretend like everything's good, everything's okay, when it's all bullshit. You know, when at home I have like a pile of laundry that's this high and I'm taking showers in a bathtub that's filled up water up to here because the, the it was so clogged from my hair and the drain and I didn't do anything about it and I would wash my clothes in the sink because I was too lazy to, it was too much of a, a an issue to go down to the basement and use the washer dryer because I didn't have a dollar or whatever it was. So in quarters. So, um, you know, I called my parents and I was like, oh my God, I need help, I'm a mess, I'm a and, and um, they said, okay, well you can move home with us. You know, but they've been watching, watching this like horror movie, you know, for the past six years. And, you know, they'd get late night calls from the ER, like I fell off a bar stool and broke my ribs, like I had to get stitches in my head because there was like a bottle in it. And, you know, over and over and over. Um, and DUI, of course, like I could just go through like the litany of things, the, the issues that we have, so that I have. So they said, yeah, you can come home, but you're gonna have to go see a psychologist. You're gonna have to get into some therapy. You're gonna have to get on medication and you cannot drink. So, okay, absolutely, I will do that, I will do that. So I went and got this big psychological evaluation that took all day and, and, and assessed for this and, and intelligence tests and all this other stuff. And they came up with, Untreated ADHD. <laughs> untreated ADHD. Um, and also the PTSD. Um, but do you think I told them how much I drank? No. Um, and the psychologist was like, probably the use of cocaine that was more about you treating your ADHD. I'm like, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. So, of course, they put me on Ritalin. And um, at, at 26, I started taking Ritalin, and well, who needs cocaine when you have Ritalin? Um, so um, that became part of my show. Um, a couple more years, um, you know, still looking for that thing that's gonna fix me. And I need to date a policeman. Yes, if I dated a policeman, that would fix me, no. Fireman, no. Lawyer, no. Doctor, no. Tried them all, no. None of them worked, none of them fixed me, not a single one. Um, and uh, my favorite was the drug dealer. That, he was the one. We moved in together in like a month. And um, that's the one that I was seeing when I ended up in Karen. Um, well, living with whatever you want to call it. So, um, you know, I was doing the same deal. I was looking for that thing. So I got a job at a gym because I love to work out, right? That's going to be my thing. It's, I'm going to become a trainer and I'm going to work out all the time and I'm going to work at a gym and that's going to be my new thing. And, and, um, and that was my thing for like a month. And then they had like a Christmas party at the gym and there was wine and I drank. And then I was working in the restaurant business down in Wayne. And then I was working at the gym and the restaurant business. And then I had to be at work at five in the morning, but I was out drinking till 4.45. Um, so you can imagine my life was not, that was not attractive. It didn't look good. I was a mess. So um, I drove up to Boston drunk to see a girlfriend, like had one of those like crises that lands us in treatment finally. Like there's that, that final like thing. So I drove up to Boston drunk and um, my girlfriend up there called my mom and was like, she's a mess, you guys gotta do something. Now they had researched Karen from when I moved home from Washington DC and um, they're like, we know this place you can go. 
and I thought it was going to be like a retreat, like a spa kind of place. Um, and you know, when we were driving up here, uh, we we're taking the uh, the turnpike, and um, I was like, oh, "Where are we going?" And I was listening to my Walkman. Yes, my Walkman. Does anyone know what that is? A Walkman? Yeah. Some. All right. A couple hands. All right. <laughs> so I was listening to my Walkman, my yellow Walkman, and um, on the way up, and I'm like, oh, "Where are we going? What are we doing?" I'm 28 years old. I just turned 28 like three weeks before that, and I couldn't even imagine what this place was going to be. And honest to God, my parents dropped me off with my stuff, and they hightailed it out of there. They're like, we are out of here. And then I kind of realized like what was happening. Like, oh my, oh my God, I'm in rehab. And the crying started. And I cried for like the first three days nonstop. Um, I was horrified that I was in a place like this. And I mean, where was I? I don't even know where I was. And I remember when we were driving up here, my mom was like, well, you never know, you might want to relocate to Reading. I was like, oh, mother, I would never live near Reading. Are you kidding me? Right, so that was 23 years ago. <laughs> um, anyway, so, um, you know, three days in, this very nice guy told me, it's gonna be okay, you're gonna be okay. And I was like, yeah, you think so? And it was love. It was love. It absolutely was. Changed my life. Changed my life. Luke, French Canadian. He was wonderful. Anyway, so basically I can tell you, you can you can hear already that I did everything that you could do wrong, I did wrong in that first year. Like no major changes. Well, I relocated to this area after treatment. Um, so they say no major changes. There's a change. They're like don't get into a relationship. I got into like eight relationships my first year. Like I wasn't messing around. Like when I do it, I do it serious. Um, so I go to treatment, and they're you know they're they really think I need to go to like another program after Karen. Like no no no, I gotta go. I gotta get home. Like they're like to what? <laughs> you know I didn't have anything. Um, and they're suggesting that I go to this place out in Minnesota that was for all women, very structured. And I, and I at the time, I didn't know what that meant, um, very structured. Um, I don't know if I thought maybe that had to do with like the actual place that you lived, but but it doesn't. It, it means they have a lot of rules. Um, and I didn't know that. So they suggested I go to this place. And so I, you know, I do an interview with them and I talk with them. And, and you know, honest to God, at this time, I really wasn't planning on quitting. Like I really wasn't. I was just gonna kind of go along with everybody so that my parents didn't cut me off financially because um, I had run out of money by this time, um, as you can imagine. And I didn't really have any plans to stay sober long-term. Um, so, you know, I do an interview with them. I'm like, what well, can I work out? And they're like, yes, after the 30-day period, you know, you can go to the gym twice a week or something. I'm like, well, can I walk in the morning? Can I run? You know, what can I do? Can I get a job? Like, can I bring my car there? And, you know, and they gave me sort of honest answers, but they couldn't give me the honest answers because there's no way I would have gone. So I get there, I do. I decide to go after I meet with the weekend counselor. Cause you know, like the staff, the staffing on the weekends is really like kind of slim. And um, so I was meeting with this male counselor who I didn't normally know. And I was explaining to him that they wanted me to go to this extended care program, but but like I needed to go, like I could go home, like after 30 days, I'm good. And 
And he's like, wait, okay, so let me get this. Wait. And I was like, I got the powerless. I'm definitely powerless. I know I'm powerless. Like I would go to happy hour and I would close the bar, go to a late night club, be up and out until the, the sound of the birds. I don't know how many times I heard the sound of the birds. And I was like, fuck. So, <clears throat> you know, I got the powerless. But unmanageable? I don't know. I don't think my life's unmanageable. Powerless, yes. Unmanageable? Hmm. He's like, let me get this straight. He's like, you have no job, you have nowhere to live, all your stuff is in your parents' garage, okay? Um, you're in an institution in Warnersville, Pennsylvania. Would you like to let me know what part of your life is manageable? He's like, fuck you, dude. <laughs> God bless him. Like. That was a hard thing probably for him to like taking a risk to say that. Um, and I was pissed, but he was right. Like, so I go to this other place and um, it, it's very structured. It's all women and, and they have very, um, the rules were pretty serious. And if you violated, they'd, they'd kick you out. And I didn't think I belonged because these women were, we're using heroin or, you know, stealing pills and stuff, and, and, and I just used alcohol and cocaine. But that's only because I just hadn't gotten to those yet. Those other chemicals were coming. I just hadn't gotten there. Um, God intervened, thank God, thank you, um, before I got there, because that was coming next. I know it was. Um, so, uh, after about a week of not following the rules, they're like, we're gonna kick you out. And I was like, okay. Mom, you gotta fly me home. And she's, it was in Rochester, Minnesota. She's like, no, we're not flying you home. You get kicked out, you're staying in Minnesota. I'm like, you can't do that. You flew me out here, you have to fly me home. I'm like, you are 28 years old, you are an adult. You wanna leave? You find your own way home. And the counselors did a great job coaching my parents to set that boundary. And I was horrified, like, because they, they had these rules about, like, how you had to make the bed and, and how you had to dress and who you could talk to at meetings and, like, how you could behave with each other, like, what, like, how close you could stand to people, if you could touch them. Like, I mean, I just thought they were the dumbest fucking rules ever. And I couldn't follow them because if I followed their dumbass rules, then that means that where would I go? Like, where would Sarah be if I followed these stupid rules? And I thought that if I followed the rules, then it wouldn't be me anymore. And I'd just be like some zombie, you know? And um, I was going to get kicked out. So I had no money. I had four suitcases of clothing. And I'm stuck in Rochester, Minnesota. And I think I had $40 and like a carton of cigarettes. Um, and I was scared to death. Like, I, like I could have called. I absolutely could have called upon like old influences, you know, the drug dealer ex-boyfriends, like other people who had en enabled me along, like throughout the years. And for whatever reason, I didn't. And I was like, I don't know how to do this. I can't do this. Like, I can't do it. Like, I could not follow their rules. And I remember being like, I don't know how to live. Like, it dawned on me that moment that I can't live. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm 28 years old and I don't know what I'm doing. So, um, as stupid as I thought it was, because I thought the whole higher power thing and God thing was a big bunch of baloney, 
um, I really didn't have anything left but to try it. And I felt so stupid and so dumb, but I was crying and I was upset and I got on my knees in my room and I felt so dumb and I asked God to help me. I was like, I don't know if you're up there, if there's anything, if there's anything at all, please help me because I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. And so I went to bed that, that day and you know, I don't, I can't say I had a white light experience, but it happened really fast. What happened really fast for me, because the next day, it occurred to me that I could make my bed the way they want me to make my bed, even if I don't like it. That was new information. And that I could follow their stupid rules, even if I think they're stupid. And that was new information. So I started following the rules. And lo and behold, I started feeling better. And it wasn't because I thought myself better, you know, or I felt myself better. It was because I did better. Like, I took the action. And that's what I have continued to learn as I've stayed sober is, like, if I try to, like, think about it really hard or feel it really hard, like, that doesn't work. I have to do something. And, um, you know, over the years I've been sober, again and again, it's been shown to me, like, it's not about what I say, it's not about what I feel, it's not about what I think, it's about what I do, it's the actions that I take. And so I stayed there for three months and um, they recognized that maybe I was um, getting a little bit fixated on exercise. So uh, they told me that, they put me on exercise restriction and I was like, mm -hmm, um, I can't do that. And you know, if I could go back and do it again, I might have stayed there. They wanted me there six months. Um, but I was like, nope, I stayed 90 days. That was what I said I would stay, 90 days. And my parents still weren't gonna fly me home. So I called um, a couple people I had met at Karen and they flew me home. Um, and I came here, went to my parents' house, went in their garage, got all my clothes, got my, got my car. And I lived in a little place in West Reading with my other early recovery friends. And, um, and that was super fun. You know, we were all like in our 20s and we were going to meetings and we were we had um a blow-up mattress on the floor in the living room and that was our couch and it had a hole in it so you'd start out like sitting on the, the blow-up mattress and then you'd end up on the hardwood floor after a little while um and but we had we had a, a an espresso maker because she was french um my friend and uh it just thought we played trivial pursuit really late um we would get together and we'd go to the diner which it's not like that anymore um so uh, it was suggested that I go to Karen outpatient and get a, a an evaluation so I can do aftercare. So I went there and they're like, well, we think you should do IOP. I was like, I've just been in treatment four months. I am fixed. I go to meetings, I'm sober four months. And they're like, yeah, we think you should do IOP. I was like, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard. But I did it. Not because I thought it was a good idea, but because I thought it was a bad idea and because it was suggested. And because at that point I already knew that when I do things differently, different things happen. And that wasn't something that I could have learned unless I did different. And unless I tried different. So I'm going to a meeting every day, I'm going to IOP, I get a job over at Gold's, and lo and behold, 
like things start changing in my life. I'm not gonna say I started working the steps because I didn't, not a thing that I would recommend. I actually didn't do a fourth step until I was sober three and a half years. And what my recovery has changed and, and <clears throat> developed in the same way that Berks County's recovery community has changed. When I, when I first came here in 99, there were lots of discussion meetings, lots of discussion meetings. So I thought that's how you stayed sober, by discussing things. You know, you discussed things. That was what we do. We discuss things at discussion meetings. People talk about their problems. Other people talk about their problems. You know, that's what we do. And, um, and I got a sponsor, and I used to discuss things with her. And basically, that meant I would call her, and I would bitch and complain, and I'd get some relief. But I wouldn't get that freedom that they promised, but I'd get relief. So every single day I would go to a meeting, I would get my relief, I would discuss things, I would listen to other people discuss their things, but I didn't really work any steps. I just kept kind of trudging away, doing, paying my bills, making my bed, because I learned how to make my bed. <laughs> that was a thing I learned in treatment. Um, and <clears throat> building up a community of people around me. So, you know, I was with that sponsor for three and a half years, and, and in that first year, like I said, I did all things wrong. I did all things wrong. I um, I went to my 10-year high school reunion, and everyone was like, don't do it, don't do it. But I talked about it at every meeting I went to. I'm going to my 10-year reunion. I'm going to my 10-year reunion, and there's going to be drinking there. And it, lo and behold, the guy I hated the most in high school was sober five years, and he was completely different. I'm like, oh my god, I'm sober nine months. Oh my god. Um, so that sponsor got, got, got really sick, like her meds got messed up or something and she ended up in um, Spruce Pavilion, which is like Tower Health uh, Mental. And, and I was like, well, you can still sponsor me, you didn't drink. And she's like, Sarah, I, I can't. Like, like I pretty much had a breakdown. And I was like, yeah, but I wouldn't buy any sponsor. So, you know, after I spent a year at the gym, then what is a budding early recovery person do in this area? Well, I got a job up at Karen because I was going to save the world and get everybody sobered like I was and everybody could get the relief that I have. And um, that also ended up being like an amazing thing because I got to go away to, to treatment to a five and a half day program. And that may have kept me sober. At two and a half years, I went to a five day program because I hadn't worked any steps yet. I'm going to meetings every single day. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, but not even really three. It's like one, two, three, because I didn't do that fourth step. And um, there was a woman I met at the five and a half day program and she was like, my life is amazing, but I know it can be better. And I was like, I was like, my life's a shit show. I was like, I think that you should sponsor me. And she was actually from this area and she did, she did sponsor me. So, and I did my first four step with her, and it was, I was sober three and a half years. We went through the step book. Like I said, mostly discussion meetings around here. And then she moved to North Carolina, which I was very sad about, and I got another sponsor. And that sponsor took me through the book. And at that point, this area, the recovery around here had kind of changed. It's not that I hadn't been to a big book meeting, but that wasn't how I knew of people going through the steps. So, and like I said, and I had a home group and I hung out with people in recovery and like I did all the fellowship that you could possibly do, but I didn't work the steps. So 
you know, I did it to the best of my ability and my sponsor's ability when I was three and a half years sober. And, and um, there wasn't any like magic, like angels singing and stuff when I did my fifth step, but, but it, I did feel different because I was like, I'm actually doing it. Like, I'm actually doing it. I'm not talking about it. I'm, I'm doing it. And up to that point, I think maybe I just realized that I had only been talking about it. And a lot of my experience had been in treatment. I stayed in therapy, continued seeing a psychiatrist, you know? And so I didn't really give myself over to the actual program until I went through the big book with a sponsor, with my third sponsor. And I can't even describe how my recovery changed as a result of that. Um, and you know, when I look back on the last 23 years, like I feel like it was kind of like an enchanted journey. You know, and I know that sounds like hokey and like silly, but I, when I look, like I never could have imagined like all the twists and turns like my life would take, like in relationships, with friends, with employment, with my education, with my family, you know, the comings and goings of, of all of those things and the places I would live and where I would go. And, um, you know, and it was like the whole time I felt safe and protected. You know, even when I was miserable and I was heartbroken and I did something really stupid, like I always felt protected. And and that's why I kind of feel like it was like an enchanted journey because I, like I had a very godmother. I mean, she didn't give me my way most of the time. Sometimes she did and that was always bad, but like, but I really feel like I've been protected this time and all this time because I had us. I had us and then after I had worked through the steps, then I really had a higher power. You know, before I had gone through the book, I was like, there's a God. I don't know if he and I are connected or she were connected, but after I went through the book, then I felt the connection. Um, and not that I, I didn't know, but it just, it changed a lot. So going through the book was, made a huge difference. Getting a home group made a huge difference. Like every time I did one of those things that was suggested, it made a huge difference. And it wasn't my idea, you know? Um, I was thinking about the, the Jim story with the suddenly, you know, suddenly he had that great idea. And I hear Jen say like, crazy comes on fast. Um, and my crazy comes in like, hey, I've got an idea. Like that's what I'll hear when it's like a bad idea. Hey, I've got an idea and it's never good. It's never good. Um, and my I've got a good idea comes on fast. So, um, you know, and, and when I talk about it as an enchanted journey, one of the guys I dated along the way, construction worker, because um, I needed to try someone in construction as well, um, he was actually a, a scuba diver. And, um, and I remember looking at the scuba magazines at his house and I was like, and I kind of thought it was like a thing you just put a mask on, you, like you took a tank and you went underwater. Like I didn't know you had to actually like study, like you had to take a class. Like I thought you just did it. Like, and it was like, you know, just how I thought you should get everything was just by getting it. Um, and I realized that I could never do that because like the class he talked about taking, like he had to be up at, at the pool at like seven in the morning on a Saturday. And I was like, I'll never be able to do that. That's not a thing I'll ever be able to do. So scuba diving is a thing that I'll never be able to do. And um, for my my husband, my ex-husband, but at the time we were engaged for our wedding present, he got me a scuba class because he was a scuba diver. 
and um, we went to Mexico like every year for like five years and then in 2010 he left his job and we took our dogs and drove to Mexico and spent two months there diving like every single day like that's a fucking trip of a lifetime like that's recovery you know like I thought I could never be a scuba diver because I can't take those classes I can't be up at seven in the morning I can't not be drunk I can't not have the stuff that I need and then I got to live in Mexico and scuba dive every freaking day. Oh my God. Don't, ever, don't drive through Mexico, that's a bad idea. <laughs> All right. Also not something I would recommend. Three and a half years, do a four step, don't drive through Mexico. Um, <laughs> so, but there's a great clubhouse in Playa del Carmen, um, which is uh, south of Cancun. And it's, there's a great group of expats who go to that AA meeting. And, you know, um, the two nights before we started our drive back, because it took us seven days to drive down there, we had like a going away party at the house that we were renting. And all our friends were there from AA. Like, had all these people over at our house. Like, in another country because of AA. So, you know, every time I've gone on vacation, you know, I go to meetings other places, and I never feel like I'm by myself. And even when I'm by myself, I don't feel like I'm by myself. Um, and, you know, again, with that enchanted journey, like I've been able to revisit the things that I loved before, and I didn't, and I forgot about, because drinking made me forget about it. Like, dogs are like my besties. I love them. Like, I want to stop my car when I see dogs and pet them. And I don't, but, um, but like, I forgot like how much joy I got from dog. Like I forgot, and and I experienced like so much pleasure. Just, oh, hello! You know, it just makes you so excited. So anyway, um, all right. Uh, okay, so in recovery, got married, um, got divorced, um, moved a couple times, uh, went back to school, got my bachelor's degree. It only took me like twenty four years to get my bachelor's degree all together. Went back to school again, and got my master's degree. And like none of that would be possible without sobriety. Because remember, I'd look at a syllabus for like Botany 101, and I was like, oh my God, I can't do that. Like, I can't do that. There's too much stuff there. There's no, like, how is it possible that someone like me, who can't do, who couldn't do anything long term, would be here so long? And that's because I don't have to ever do anything long term. I only have to do it today. And that's pretty easy you know, just doing this day today. And if I'm doing this day to the best of my ability today, then I have a chance to show up tomorrow and do tomorrow to the best of my ability. Or maybe not, but at least not drink. Because I've had a lot of days where I've just not drank. And that's okay too, you know? Because I learn a lot from those days. You know, when I stop working my program, I blow up my life. It's happened a bunch of times. Um, but I get a chance to put it back together if I don't pick up. So, um, It's empty. There's nothing up there now. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. That's all I have. Thanks for checking out this episode of the New Life Speakers Podcast. Please remember that our group is self-supporting through its seven tradition. Donations can be made by clicking the link on our website, newlifespeakers.org. You can also find a link for this in the description below. Tune in next week for a new speaker, and thanks for listening.